I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I've got a rather lovely reading to kick us off with by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I love him. I hadn't heard of him before. I think he's really fucking famous. I really, I really am looking forward to lots of tweets from, pe- from people telling me that he's really famous and I should know him. Thank you. Really fucking famous. <laughs> Write it on your heart that every day is the best day in the year. He is rich who owns the day, and no one owns the day who allows it to be invaded with fret and anxiety. Finish every day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. Begin it well and serenely, with too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. This new day is too dear with its hopes and invitations to waste a moment on the yesterdays. I just feel like I'm always cumbered by old bloody nonsense. I just think this is such a great piece of writing. Obviously, I think it must have been written many, 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 many years ago. But I think it does really capture a kind of collective anxiety of 2019, a kind of self-consciousness and a solipsism that I think we need to rid of. And I think this is a very nice reminder to just chill the fuck out. Cumbered is a great word. I've only ever heard of unencumbered. Mm. But given your fondness for a slogan pillow, I think too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. Mm, it's good, Embroidered. Isn't it? A little pillow. Tiny one on your bed. I've got a story that was made for you, DA. Give me. A woman in Nebraska wore a dinosaur costume to her sister's wedding. Love that. After she was told she could pick anything she wanted to wear to be made of honour. <laughs> Christina Medawars said that if she was going to spend more than $50 in an outfit, then she wanted it to be something she'd wear more than once. And she'd always wanted a dinosaur costume. Her sister was completely fine with it. Can I just say that woman is 100% single? (laughs) And I'm not saying that as a judgment. I'm saying that as a woman who also was the only single woman at a wedding this weekend and behaved in a totally bizarre way because of that. This just smacks of the only single woman at a wedding vibe. I think it was... um, Actually, she felt like it was an act of generosity. In the pictures, the dinosaur is towering (laughs) for the married couple under this little garden arch. But also so nice of the bride to be like, cool, babe. She obviously knew. I think there's an understanding of what her sister is like. (laughs) She obviously knew there was no persuading her to get the Jenny packed. Yeah. J.K. Rowling gave £15.3 to a research centre at the University of Edinburgh for research into multiple sclerosis known as MS and similar conditions. Her mum, Anne, died of complications from MS. Rowling, whose empire is said to be worth more than a billion, is a huge philanthropist. It was reported in 2012 that she dropped off Forbes' billionaire list because she'd given an estimated $150 million to charity. She's given a hell of a lot more since then. And David Cameron's book is out. He's been doing a lot of press. I haven't yet watched his big interview on Neither ITV. have I. Piggy bank fact for you. He got 
£800,000 for his advance versus Tony Blair's £4.6 million. Wow, that's interesting. I know the answer to this. Dolly, will you be reading his 720-page autobiography? Categorically not. I did read Tony Blair's one. Did you? Yeah, I particularly enjoyed the extract where he talked about the prime ministerial annual trip to Balmoral and the Queen, one of the traditions, I think it's in the summer, one of the traditions of this trip is that they have a barbecue on the last night outside and the Queen has to do all the washing up. It is in the summer because Boris Johnson recently went and he was the first person to take a paramour that is not a spouse. Right. God, everyone's obsessed with that, aren't they? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I actually really enjoyed Tony Blair's one, but no, I won't be reading DC's. Will will you be reading it? No, I'd read it if it was 400 pages. There's just so much to read. Do you know what I mean? It's just, I don't think I can make the time for it. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's long. An important story we wanted to flag is that the woman whose Stanford University sexual assault case caused a public outcry, known only as Emily Doe, has revealed her identity. In her new memoir, Know My Name, which charts her life since the crime and the court case, she reveals her real name is Chanel Miller. If you need reminding of the story, in 2016, Miller's case made headlines after BuzzFeed published the incredibly moving statement she read at the sentencing hearing for Brock Turner, who is the Stanford student convicted of the assault. Brock Turner was found guilty of three counts of felony sexual assault for which the maximum sentence was 14 years. But the judge, Aaron Persky, sentenced Turner to six months in county jail, of which he served three. Judge Persky's ruling drew criticism from those who viewed it as too lenient, and he was recalled by voters in 2018. Although Chanel Miller's case occurred before the Me Too movement, her statement and Brock Turner's sentence became part of the intense debates around rape and sexual misconduct over the past years. The book is out on the 24th of September and I cannot wait to read it. Here is a very powerful clip of Chanel herself reading aloud an extract of the statement that was made anonymously on her behalf in court. Your Honour, if it is all right, for the majority of this statement, I would like to address the defendant directly. You don't know me, but you've been inside me. In newspapers, my name was unconscious, intoxicated woman. Ten syllables and nothing more than that. I had to force myself to relearn my real name, my identity, to relearn that this is not all that I am, that I am not just a drunk victim at a frat party bound behind a dumpster, while you are the all-American swimmer at a top university, innocent until proven guilty, with so much at stake. The third Westerner jailed in Iran has been named this week as the Australian-British academic Kylie Moore Gilbert. The Cambridge graduate was in the country after being awarded a grant to investigate Iran's relationship with Bahrain Shia after the Arab uprising. Despite her extensive writing on the Middle East, Iranian authorities claim she is a spy and she's been imprisoned in Tehran's even prison along with travel blogger Jolie King and her fiancé Mark Firkin, who you might have read about recently because there's been quite a lot of them. They were arrested in August for filming with a drone which you need a licence to um, operate in Iran. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, the British-Iranian aid worker, is obviously the other Westerner who is currently jailed in Tehran since 2016 for allegedly pledging to topple the Iranian government. 
And Felicity Huffman is the first celebrity to go to prison for the university admission scandal in the US, where high net worth Americans, including the Desperate Housewives actor and Laurie McLaughlin, who was in 90210, paid to have their kids' exam results tampered with to get them into better universities. Huffman admitted to paying £11,500 to have her daughter's exam answers secretly corrected in 2017. 50 people were charged in relation to the scheme, though none of the children themselves were indicted, but Huffman is the first to receive a sentence. She must also do 250 hours of community service and pay a $30,000 fine. It's kind of unprecedented that, isn't it? It still blows my mind, that whole thing. Um, she uh, has... 11,500 is peanuts compared to what um, I think some of them paid, which was up to half a million to have their kids put into, like, the water polo teams at USC, despite never having played water polo before. I don't even know how that how that works. They can just, I like, ask f- you a question about water polo? You can try. It's polo, with, in, it's polo in the water. It's not with horses. <laughs> It can't be it's true. Not, it's not. Is it volleyball, basically? What yeah. is it? My, yeah. My wife did this exact thing once and it got roundly scrutinised. Well, I think your wife and I are the only ones with any sense, frankly. No, I think it would be more fun if it was with water horses. So what is it then? Just a what, like a volleyball? Yeah, I think so. I don't Why really know what... Why would you pay £50,000 to play fucking pool volleyball? No, they aren't paying to play it. They're paying to pretend they play it so they could get into the university because... Sporting, just get a paddling pool and just yeah. Okay, I can see where this. I can see where this is going to go. <laughs> um, moving on, I also wanted to talk about the global climate strike, which is due to happen this week. For anyone who hasn't heard about it, or for anyone who wants to find out more about it, on the twentieth September, millions of people around the world will strike to demand that governments take radical action to address the climate crisis. This started exactly a year ago with Greta Thunberg protesting by herself outside the Swedish parliament. Since then, it has led to multiple school strikes earlier in the year and a massive strike is now planned with working people around the world joining the youth strikers. Many companies are signing up to allow their employees to take part. In the UK, the strike has the backing of the RIBA and the UK Green Building Council, amongst others. Further afield, Germany's service sector union, Verdi, has called on its two million members to join. If you'd like to strike, obviously, and I cannot state this enough, I'm very aware that this is a completely personal choice to request whether you want to strike. But if you would like to, you can ask your employer to strike and you can attend a strike event near you. There are lots happening that day. If you'd like to find out more about it, you can visit globalclimatestrike.net. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? Listeners loved hearing our vicars talk about the privileged insight they get into strangers' lives by being so present during the ceremonies and rituals of funerals and death. That's what I meant to listen to this week. I was almost going to text you and say, I'm really sorry for being the high-low listener that can't find the show notes. But <laughs> I really need a good podcast to listen to when I'm going around. And that was the bloody Vickers. Three okay. Vickers. Yeah, I need a, I'm really bad at remembering podcasts to listen to. I always forget That's them. so funny. I actually think I might have a podcast problem now. You know, you've joked for ages that I just listen to too many podcasts and I'm the yes, number pod-cat. one podcast. I was talking to Caroline O'Donoghue about this and she said that she realised that she had a problem when she would be getting sort of stressed out about 
what podcast episode she would listen to in the seven minutes it took her to take the bins out and come back. See, this is me with um, newspapers, magazines and books. It's, yeah. it's cultural saturation. It's yeah. overload. But it's also avoidance. Like, why am I so scared of just the silence of my empty flat? <laughs> do you think it's avoidance? or do you? Think I think it's, it's avoidance. I think it's a problem. I actually think this is a big problem and I hadn't realised. I think it's me not wanting to think, to be alone with my thoughts. This is very useful. I'm about to write I an know. essay on this. Yeah. Anyway, if you think you've got that problem as well, podcast addiction, do let me know. Email the high low and it will go straight into my essay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, people loved listening to the three vicars talking and you will as well, Panda. Two classical singers who sing at funerals wrote in to say that they had uh, they'd had similar experiences one said i'm a classical singer who ends up singing at lots of people's weddings and funerals and agree with the sentiment that sometimes funerals are one of the best parts of the job because mostly you get to hear about ordinary people who've done amazing things and you get to contribute to the process of grief and healing in a way that not everyone can through music and i feel a huge amount of honor in that another said I find singing at funerals to be the most important and tangible work I do as a musician. The moment I start on an Ave Maria, a poignant hymn or favourite song of the deceased, that is the time you see the family and friends break down and begin to share their grief. It truly is such an honour to get to help people grieve. Oh, thank you for sharing those. A few listeners wrote in about the woman who travelled really quite far for a horrible first date. Oh, yeah then crowdfunded to get her money back. They said they'd had similar bad dating experiences and one listener said that she demanded her bad date refund her personally. So if there's one more, three's a trend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she said that's the rule of magazines, by the way, everyone at home. If there are three celebrities doing it, suddenly it's a trend piece. <laughs> Our listener said, In 2015, I found myself in a similar situation after finding out the man I had been dating for several months was in a long-term relationship. Instead of setting up a GoFundMe page, I decided to take matters into my own hands and demanded he reimburse me for a meal I had paid for. I decided to send him the following message, and within 24 hours, he had paid the full amount without a quibble. Hi, I've been thinking about what you said on the phone last week and now after hearing that you're in a relationship for the entire time we were dating, I would like you to refund me the £134.95 I spent on dinner at the Butcher's Hook. God, they had quite the feast at the Butcher's Hook. I have the receipt if you would like a picture. I don't earn enough money to spend it on someone who used me for confirmation to find out if his long-term relationship wasn't working out or wanted to see what else is out there. Unlike you, I can ill afford to spend that much money on an evening under such false circumstances. I can kind of understand that. Oh, I so think that I say hell yes to I stuff. think being in a relationship whilst dating someone else, that she had slightly more ground... Yeah, that one. And also, she wasn't setting up a GoFundMe page. The GoFundMe page thing worried me because I feel like it really bastardises the idea of charity. Mm. And GoFundMe is... I read a really interesting piece in The New Yorker, um, I think it was in the summer, about how GoFundMe is like kind of like journalism in that everyone is just wanting their piece to go viral. So there are lots of really similar cases on GoFundMe. Um, A lot of parents whose children have rare diseases and um, research needs to be funded or they need to go um, to, you know, clinics in other countries and it costs vast amounts of money. And some of those cases had been wildly successful and out-earned, you know, 10 times over what they were Mm. asking for. 
and outraised 10 times over what they were asking for and other ones had just fizzled away and died and it was literally just to do with like how they were sold and you know mm. all these arbitrary things but it was really interesting but what it did show is that GoFundMe is really saturated with yes. like tragic tales that was the issue I had with the GoFundMe get, by all means get this bastard to pay you back I just remember that I wrote a character in a script a few years ago who was a millennial woman who started a GoFundMe to get a full head of highlights how have you only just remembered that and maybe that's not too far from the realms of possibility I only wonder why you gave up on it I think we took it out because we were like it's just too stupid even for like a silly scene but maybe maybe it's not (laughs) maybe it's not and Thatcher Wine continues to cause a stir. Oh, hi, darling. One listener wrote in to counter our dismissive opinion on the celeb bibliophile Thatcher Wine. When is that name going to stop amusing me? Thatcher Wine's <laughs> filling of celebrity bookshelves with books, hundreds of books that they have not read and possibly will not read. Because I actually don't mind filling books. Yeah, yeah, I've got loads of books I haven't read. Because I actually think that's something quite lovely about doing that because the intention of that is that you're promising yourself time. So there's something really wonderful about the hopefulness of of buying books you intend to read. But from what I understood, this was about there was an option here for books for purely decorative uh, reasoning. But this this listener said, It's interesting to remember that books began as decorative items to display social status and wealth. Before the invention of the printing press in the 15th century, books were pretty much only accessible in monastic libraries and palaces where they were intended as much to show the majesty and glory of God as for learning though not for pleasure. And after the printing revolution, though texts such as pamphlets were more widely spread, it became a status symbol to have a bound book in the home. They were precious heirlooms and often left in wills to descendants alongside beds and silver. So the use of books for display is nothing new. And in fact, we seem to be circling back around to one of their earlier functions. The purpose of books has changed throughout the centuries. And we should remember that the democratisation of books and reading as an act of personal indulgence are both relatively new as a phenomenon. So there we go. That's me told for being so earnest and pompous that's really interesting and i was just thinking as you said that actually about um books being a sign of social status because i wonder if it's going that way in america i was really shocked by how much books cost there Mm. when i was over there in the summer so a book here that would cost 12.99 or maybe 14.99 cost 24.95 before tax there mm. um and i tweeted that and i got a reply from a girl um who lives in america saying that she had gone to buy three books in a bookstore and the total had come to 140 dollars, and she just left oh, the God. store crying yeah. so whenever you think oh my god books are so expensive thank god they're not as expensive as they are in america and what i always say because i always feel a bit bad and a bit culpable when people uh, CC me and you into tweets Dolly saying oh no I'm bankrupt again and then like have a little stack of the books they bought after listening to the high note because we are very lucky that we do in, to, to be totally transparent although we have been transparent about this before we do get sent proofs get because that's proofs. a part of our job but I do also spend a fortune on books books and magazines are my biggest expenditure by absolute far mm. but what I would say is um, what I always say to people is libraries and second hand I, I buy only, a lot of second hand books I buy loads second hand and also if you belong to a library 
Library. I do. I belong to the British Library. They get, um, someone was like, but you can't pre-order them. Yes, you can. You would pre-order and, you know, if you're lucky enough to pre-order, be the first person, Mm. then you're the first person to borrow on the list. If not, you'll get it, you know, after someone else has borrowed it. But libraries get brand new books. I spent so much time in my local library when I was growing up. The maximum books you could take out was 14. Guess how many? (laughs) (laughs) So many goosebumps. (laughs) Oh, I used to love those books. What was the other one? Point Horror or something. Yeah. What was it called? I think it was. Was it called Point Horror? Charlie's The Generation Above Us, sadly, Panda. (laughs) (laughs) Babysitter's Clubs, Horrible Histories, um... Tons and tons of brilliant franchises. I'm joking, Charlie. You're a millennial just like us. I'm bringing you down with us. He is, because he's under 37. Yeah. Finally, on our Any Other Business segment (laughs) of this podcast, we have an appeal to you, our darling listeners. We would like your stories. Storytelling, as you may know by now, dinosaur costumes or otherwise, is a massive part of the Hilo. And we would love to hear your best, oldest, most memorable, historical, passed down through the ages or gathered at the pub stories for the Hilo experience. You can email show at gmail.com. Please don't scrimp on detail. If things need to be kept anonymous, that's absolutely fine. But we want your yarns, your moving yarns, your funny yarns, your shocking yarns, your breathtaking yarns. Basically what we said what, when we were thinking about this part of the show that we're going to have when we're on the road um, is we want, as Panda mentioned, the best story that you would tell at the pub. That's what we're after and we can't wait to receive them. Panda, give me your recommendations for this week. I finished The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, the most hyped book since The Goblet of Fire. There's even a huge display of it in my local Sainsbury's. What did you think of it? I thought it was hugely enjoyable. Um, I don't think it's booker-worthy. It's one of the six booker finalists. But to quote a review in The Times, because I think this is exactly right, it wouldn't be, if she did win, it wouldn't be the first time that an author has won, that the right author has won for the wrong book, if that makes sense. So she didn't win for The Handmaid's Tale in the 80s. And I think she should have. I mean, that book was mm. absolutely, def- like, literature-defining, culture-defining, mm. you know, has stood the test of time. Um, so she would be winning for the Testaments, but, you know, it would it would be the right kind of award. And it, whoever did this review, sorry, I can't remember, said that that's exactly what happened with Ian McEwan, who didn't win for Atonement, which, mm. again, I thought was an you know, incredible book, but did win for Amsterdam, which I haven't read, but didn't do nearly as well. So that was quite an interesting... It is interesting to think about those. I think that's fair enough, actually. Do you? I don't think I agree, actually. You think it should just be based on the book? Well, I don't know. I I was a judge on a book prize last year, and the thing that we were told to just keep coming back to is it's not about the author, it's not about the canon of the author, it's not about the profile of the author. It's, It's... about the book I think the people on the Booker Prize board would think it was just about mm. the book mm. but from yes like, exactly we're only speculating an, an outside point of view um, yeah. I did think he also called it a rattlingly good yarn to come back to the old yarn and I think that that's the way I would say it, it I it, I didn't think it was incredible in the way The Handmaid's Tale was I think it will um, but it's had absolutely brilliant reviews I think as I said it's hugely enjoyable I think it was really clever the way it both reflected and reclaimed The Handmaid's Tale um, as Atwood's own because it turned into this TV phenomenon and even though 
um, that did sell loads of books all over again. A lot of people watched it and fell in love with Elizabeth Moss's Offred, mm. who have never read the book. But um, there was something, I don't know if it's meta or if it's just, just her reclaiming it. In the TV series, there's a character called Baby Nicole, which is a baby born in Gilead, who's then taken out of Gilead. Um, and she picks up on the narrative of Baby Nicole in the book. So I thought that was quite mm. clever. Um, and there's also lots of new twists, like the backstory of the vile Aunt Lydia. Um, like, is she as vile as you think? And there are new genres of girls. There are the girls in the green dresses for soon-to-be wives. There are silver dresses for the pearl girls who go out of Gilead to Canada to lure people back to uh, Gilead. There's a lot more of an expansion. In The, in the Handmaid's Tale... A lot is left unexplained, and this mm. felt like the book where she really wanted to flesh out her, the world. Um, one of the things I think that's such a nice service to to the readers as well. I think lots of authors would think, "I'm not going to give you what exactly. you want," and I don't think she necessarily gave them what they wanted. But I think she was both responsive to and interested mm. in how it had been interpreted, which is definitely very generous. Um, one of the things I didn't realise, and which she keeps to in this book as well, which is amazing and horrifying, is that there is nothing in either book that has not happened in US history. I know. Um, I went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I want to talk to you about it. You've been to see it. Yeah, I saw it last week. It's a short film. <laughs> I actually could have watched more of it. Could you? Yeah. Did you think it was too long? I find it really hard sitting for a long time in the cinema because um, I get sore. Yeah, of course. Of <laughs> course. Such an old lady. Um, but also, I think three hours, that's how long you're there for. Now. Maybe it's because I got so many snacks. I got so many snacks that when the man showed me to my seat, he said, he looked at my snacks and said, are you waiting for someone to come? And I said, no, just seeing it on my own. <laughs> Maybe that's how I got through. I, took, I think that might have been a reason why I didn't love it so much, because I took sushi. Oh, Pandora, that is... You never take sushi to a cinema. That is terrible cinema etiquette. It, well, it was terrible for me. Was it terrible for everyone else? Soy sauce everywhere, all over me. I cannot believe you did that. It's barbaric behaviour. Sticky rice everywhere. (laughs) The man next to me put his hand over... He, like, blocked me with his hand so he didn't have to see me. Which I felt... That's another reason, actually, probably why I wanted the film to... I felt like that was a bit dramatic. He was probably choking on the smell of your wasabi. Anyway, the film... Sorry. So I didn't realise that it didn't tell the... I'm obviously really silly. I didn't realise it didn't tell the true story of the Manson murder. Neither did I. So I got to the end of the film and was like, what? Yeah. I've been dreading it the whole way through. Love that it was a fictional retelling of Me it. Me too. Um, and that made a lot more sense because I was baffled by this Rick Dalton uh, backstory. That you'd never heard of. That I'd never yeah. heard of. And I wondered why there was so much time spent on it. I know. I was like, "Is it? I know I'm not that into spaghetti westerns, but surely I would know who this man is. Oh, we should probably say, just because sometimes we have listeners tweet at us that we should have spoiler alerts. I'm going to say something about the end of the film within the next few minutes. So if you don't want to find out about the end of the film, nothing too explicit, but I'm going to be hinting towards it. Please do press the skip 10 seconds button on your phone now. Probably three minutes actually to be safe. <laughs> I did think that Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio were really, really good. They were amazing. They had amazing chemistry. The film is really just about that. It didn't really need to have... Sharon Tate. Oh, I disagree. I think that basically it's a story about the end of the sixties and that that period. Of... You're right. That's interesting. Then you've got you've got the sort of struggling actor and the stunt guy, mm. 
You've got the beautiful young ingenue. Mm. Um, I really want her maternity wardrobe. It was really cool. And then you've got the hippie gangs. Yeah. And it's about... Actually, one of my book recommendations I'm talking about later is about this as well. It's about that kind of dark, creeping feeling in California about the end of what was perceived to be a free and liberated Mm. and golden time and, and what was bubbling underneath. And actually... I don't. There, there was one bit that I really struggled with. I really, really enjoyed it. I think I know what you're going to say. I really struggled with that violent sequence at the end. I found it really, really difficult. I thought that violent sequence was completely unnecessary and totally Tarantino. He's always got like really explicit violence against women. I know, and I don't. I actually am someone who I can see. I can see the merit in it cinematically. In terms of, first of all, it was so cartoonish and it was it felt like redress and retribution and justice in a real life story that was so tragic so I I appreciate that by kind of having that fictional realm in which justice could be served but the reason why I think I really really didn't like it is when I was younger I don't know why I think it was because I was really obsessed with Sharon Tate and those kind of actresses of the 60s I became quite obsessed with the Manson family and and that murder in particular. And I remember reading a lot and seeing a lot of pictures of um, the crime scene um, and lots of accounts of that night and that weird shoot that Roman Polanski did that's very famous of him at the house. And I continue to be so haunted by that story that for me, I know it was fictional and I know it was seeking retribution. It still did happen. And I know it didn't happen as cartoonishly as it did in that sequence. There was still... The people next door still died in a, in a horrifically bloody way. And, and actually, some of the things that those Manson family members said in the film when they break into the house I've read is verbatim what they said when they broke into the Polanski house how do we know that when there's no there were no survivors it must have been the perpetrators that said that the the perpetrators who recalled it but for for that reason and I know that might make me oversensitive and a bit of a party pooper I just was I just found it too much I think there are lots of people that would find it uh, too much, even if they weren't preoccupied with the Manson murders mm. when they were younger. The aspect that it I... It just felt disrespectful to me. And I know to use Boris Johnson's phrase, that might make me a girly swat. But <laughs> I think it just sailed slightly too close to the events of reality for, for me to have appreciated that particular bit. The thing that I would say is um, wincy for me, which I didn't think about in the film. And then I tweeted um, how much I'd enjoyed that it was a fictional retelling and that I found it a lot sweeter. And a few people replied, um, quite rightly, because I don't disagree, I just hadn't thought about it, that um, they found... Again, this is kind of quite classic Tarantino. um, They found that people really liked... Brad Pitt's character really odd considering it was very heavily hinted at that he killed his wife yeah and that's an, that's also something I didn't really think about because you are definitely meant to love that character yeah um, and that's quite an odd backstory the glamorisation of violence is the most obviously the most common 
thing you hear as a as a reason not to watch or enjoy Tarantino's film. Which again, I do understand that. I was quite interested that both Tarantino and Polanski are obviously very famous film directors who will have been working. I mean, Tarantino's younger, but they would have been working it a lot of times. I thought they might have met before. Roman Polanski obviously hasn't been back to America since the 70s, I think, mm. because of the rape charge against mm. him. Mm-hmm. But I had thought that they might have friends in common or they might have spoken or... I was quite surprised to hear that there had been absolutely no conversation between them. Really? Like Tarantino hadn't, you know, sent, I don't know, an email to his agent and said, just to let you know I'm I'm making about a film about, about Sharon Tate. Um, and in turn, Roman didn't speak to him and I had just assumed it would be a small world and that because Polanski's not in it at all except for one little tiny bit where he looks like Mike Myers. I was about to say yeah. do you think that's his way of being deferential? Um I don't I couldn't because he's not it's very clear that this is not the story of Roman Polanski. No, it's not. It's not it's not really even the story of the Manson murderers. No. What? What is it? Why did I love it so much? I'm just trying to kind of really examine why I liked it so much. Because I thought it was so good. I think I just loved its depiction of Hollywood. I thought it was really good. I know why I loved it so much. I think the thing I found most moving about it, actually, is the examination of the fickle nature of Hollywood and how ageing and insecurity and anxiety develops for big performers in the movie industry. That's what I, like, that sequence with Leonardo DiCaprio when he fucks up a scene and goes back to his trailer, I think was the most powerful sequence in the whole thing. I I just love the fragility of that character. It was perfect. I had assumed that him and Brad Pitt would be really good pals in real life. So did I. Don't tell me they're not. Well, I read a joint interview where it did not sound like there was much rapport between them. Really? Wow, because they had so much... Yeah, you'd think there would be a... Anyway, we could go on all day about this. I'll say one more thing about it, which is nothing to do with the film or the story that it's based on. But fuck me, Brad Pitt. How is he getting more (laughs) good-looking? He's like sort of 55, though, isn't he? He's he's like hotter than he ever has been. His face... I could have just stared at his face for three hours while eating my view nachos, I think. <laughs> View nachos. View nachos, FYI, are the best because there's an option to get Doritos chili heat wave as the crisps underneath. I know this because I think you've tweeted it before. Yeah, I just want <laughs> everyone else to know. It's my gift to you. <laughs> Support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa. Secret Spa brings beauty treatments to the home. Avoid the schlep to the salon and put London's best beauty and massage therapists straight to your home, hotel or workplace through Secret Spa's mobile app. I have a confession to make. Go on. I used Secret Spa last night. Sunday night massage in the comfort of my own bedroom. I thought you seemed a bit overly relaxed today. I'm deeply envious snuffling through my revolting colds. You do look <laughs> the epitome of health and relaxation. Oh, thank you. It was so, so good. There was a lot of deep tissue elbow action unknotting my crunchy old back (laughs) it was so so good secret spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty and wellness treatments including massage manicures 
waxing, spray tan, lashes and brows. There's no need to worry about travelling home after a relaxing massage or facial that's left you red-faced or worry about smudging your toenails. Personally, I literally just rolled straight into bed yesterday afterwards. And unlike a salon, you can book out-of-hours appointments from 7 in the morning to 10 in the evening so you can squeeze your beauty treatments in before, during or after work around your busy day. As a mother to a toddler, I cannot describe how convenient this is. I virtually never go to a salon anymore. If I'm ever going to have a pedicure or treat myself to a massage, then I do it at 7.30pm at home for the same price, if not frequently cheaper than actually going to a salon. The quality of therapists is consistently excellent because Secret Spa puts such effort into finding the very best after rigorous rounds of assessment. I can attest that my massage therapist was utterly brilliant last night. Prices start at £35 and to enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, download the Secret Spa app or visit secretspa.co.uk and use the code HILO at checkout. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. What else have you enjoyed? I rattled through She Said, which is the highly anticipated non-fiction book by the New York Times journalists who broke the Weinstein scandal in 2017. So it deals with them kind of gathering enough evidence because these stories have been percolating for a really long time. The New Yorker, um, which then did publish a piece written by Ronan Farrow, um, had been trying to publish something for a long time. Um, Various other outlets had been, but they could never get um, enough people on the record. Uh, so it starts with this kind of very interesting journalistic like gathering of sources, basically trying to persuade people to go on the record. And um, it is incredibly interesting for the people that are really involved that I didn't know about. Lena Dunham is really instructive in their investigation really? at trying to get people um, to talk to them. And Gwyneth Paltrow is their biggest help out there she does everything from ringing up all of her Mm. Hollywood friends and asking if they've got any stories to try and persuade other people to go on the record as well as hosting at her house a lot of survivors of um, sexual assaults not just by Harvey Weinstein but um, Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey the journalists who won a Pulitzer for this went on to then uncover lots of other um, sexual harassment and um, case of sexual assault in organisations like McDonald's which mm. didn't have any policy against sexual harassment and so the woman that had been the sort of whistleblower for that who was only about 25 I think she was one of the women that um, they flew into uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's house because they wanted to bring all these women together that they'd spent a few years um, making history with because they what they say in the book and I think this is something that some people said at the time so I really loved them talking about how they wrangled with it is both of both of these journalists were really serious journalists who had done like incredible work for women's rights and both of them kind of were a bit like do we really want to commit the next year of our lives Mm -hmm. to Hollywood and to Harvey Weinstein but you know they sort of felt like of all the women out there Hollywood actors probably had had the easier lot Mm -hmm. in life this is before they really uncovered the depth of this by the way I'm not saying that they were like of oh, we don't give a shit. It's not what they said. Um, and once they kind of got deeper into it and obviously realised that it was very different from what they thought and they realised how much Hollywood 
it, you can't read, I think it was Gia Tolentino that said this, you can't read celebrities like tea leaves. They are not a reflection of the women we are. They are, they are magnified examples of who we are um, and they live their life completely differently. What a beautiful turn of phrase. What, the tea leaves? Yeah. Yeah, it's really that true is what though. we do. That's so we true. do do that and I think there's value in that actually. I do think they set agendas in various ways but they also through through privilege and through the disorientating light of fame um, live lives skewed in a way that we never could. But regardless, what was happening with Weinstein really did then unfurl across multiple other industries that they then went on to do um, work in. I think the thing that is most shocking um, is the revelation of silencing settlements. Mm -hmm. So these women had all been paid off uh, essentially by Harvey Weinstein which is something that's obviously very well publicised um, often they were pressured into it so they would be kept in a room for 12 hours at a time and it became kind of inevitable that, that they were only going the only thing they were going to get was money and they were also never going to be able to talk about it with anyone again including their therapists or their husbands there's one woman that they spend a really long time trying to persuade to join their cause called Rowena Chu who was 22 or something at the time um, an assistant in London and she had never told her husband mm-hmm. you know they, so oh th- what what they did to this woman the lasting effects of, mm-hmm. of what these settlements did to these women and most interestingly and most controversially um, some of the lawyers involved with these silencing settlements are very, very famous feminist lawyers. So Gloria Allred, who is known as like one of the most famous feminist lawyers in the US who deals a lot with victims of um, sexual crimes, uh, she said in defence, well, this was the best these women were going to get. This was the only justice I was going to get. I was either going to get them nothing or I was going to get them money in silencing settlements. But they really look into the kind of morality of that. And the most sensational bit about it, and this has been going, and this has been going round and round on Twitter, and I think this will, if it wasn't already going to shoot to the top of the bestseller list, it will now because they have managed to get hold of, and this just goes to show what kind of reporters they are. I don't know how. They've managed to get hold of an email from Gloria Allred's daughter, Lisa Bloom, who's another very famous feminist lawyer. Um, She originally represented Harvey Weinstein. And then when it became very clear that there were loads and loads of women accusing him, she publicly stepped down and did a sort of mea culpa and said, you know, I had no idea and I'm so sorry and I'm with these women. Um, And it was kind of believed that the trajectory had been as soon as she found out she quit. Mm. And they have got hold of this leaked email from Lisa to Harvey Weinstein. Um, which completely disproves that, where she details all the ways in which they can discredit Rose McGowan, who was the first woman. Sort of, I've, I've heard about this on the Fresh Air episode, sort of drawing on the expertise that she knows from having worked with victims of sexual yeah. violence. It's fucking mind-blowing. Yeah, I don't know how she will ever recover from this. I'm just going to read you a tiny bit. Um I read through a lot of Rose's Twitter feed to get a sense of her and watched her short film, Dawn. I'm no film critic, but I found it dreadful. Telling us to who Rose is. Boy meets girl. Girl trusts boy. Boy murders girl. All men suck. The end. I feel equipped to help you against the Roses of the world because I have represented so many of them. 
They start out as impressive, bold women, but the more one presses for evidence, the weakness and lies are revealed. She doesn't seem to have much going on these days, except her rapidly escalating identity as a feminist warrior, which seems to be entirely based on her online rants. For her to keep her Rose Army following, she must continue ramping up the outrageousness of her diatribes. She then goes on to all the different ways in which they can get to her, like initiating friendly contact to find out what she wants. Counterops online campaign to push back and call her out as a pathological liar. Sending her a cease and desist letter. Um, oh, this is gross. She suggests he starts the Weinstein Foundation, focusing on gender equality in film, or establish the Weinstein Standard, which seeks to have one third of films directed by women or written by women, or passing the Bechdel test. She oh then feels God. the need to tell Harvey what the Bechdel test is. Announce you will immediately raise standards, RE, gender parity in very specific ways on all films under your control. Announce partnership with Gina Davis's group that works for gender equality in film. You get the idea. These details can be worked out. But the point is you decide to be leader and raise the bar in a concrete headline grabbing way. And then on it goes. Um, it's almost unfathomable. You sort of can't, you can't believe. It reads like a thriller, this book. Mm. It is. It's incredible the work they were doing. And... What absolutely staggers me is that um, one of them, Jodie, had a daughter of a year and a half, I think, when they started, and Megan had a newborn baby when they were doing this. And it was relentless because he tried it every time to discredit them. And a lot of the women who said, oh, we'll come forward then, um, because it nothing is obviously kept secret. So he knew that they were planning this story. So he would turn up unannounced at New York Times offices with lawyers. Um, they had to tell him all the all of the facts that they were aiming to put forward so that he could have the right to reply. Mm. I didn't realise you had to do that, but they felt that they absolutely had to. So there's obviously a risk that when they give him these names, he's going to go away and tamper with them. And something I found really sad was he was obsessed with Gwyneth Paltrow. That's talked about in the Fresh Air episode uh, with Terry Gross that was out last week. I loved that, yeah. It's good, isn't it? I listened to that on your recommendation because how much Gwyneth Paltrow featured as this sort of strange pinnacle that he was obsessed it was. with. But because they they were really confused. Jodie and Megan were really confused because he kept on mentioning Gwyneth and they were thinking He kept saying, Are you talking to Gwyneth? Yeah, and, and they Gwyneth? kept on thinking, This is really weird, like Gwyneth hasn't come forward. Like, how does he know we're talking to her? This is all it had been, you know, very protected. And then the reason why they found out that he suspected is they spoke to other actresses who all said that he had used Gwyneth as an example of what they could achieve if they slept with him. Yeah. And there is a moment in the book where she breaks down and she says, I feel like I was complicit in this because I had no idea that I was being used as an example of what these women could have if they capitulated to him. And ev and, and they'd all, you know, women that she knew would come forward and said, we assumed that you'd slept with him. And she never had. Anyway, it's... um. Like I said, it reads like a thriller. It then goes on. Only about half the book. First half of the book is Weinstein. It then goes into the Christine Blasey Ford story, um, which they broke as well uh, with Brett Kavanagh, um, which is brilliant. And then just a larger kind of, you know, deconstruction of um, Me Too. And something they said on the Fresh Air podcast, what did you think of this, is they talked about their discomfort with the Believe All Women hashtag. I'm I'm glad that was addressed actually. What they said is that as and they and they specifically replied as journalists. They said as journalists, their entire MO as New York Times journalists is to 
prove, 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 interrogate, 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 check every source. You know, they are meticulous in what they break. And where they felt worried because this, without proof, without um, this kind of very careful due diligence, everything falls apart very easily. And they felt like the Believe All Women hashtag was sort of weakening Mm. what not they were building they're not narcissists about it but what was being built Mm. and they did use the example of the Aziz Ansari babe don net piece which we talked about on the high low last year of how it felt like a lot was being lumped into the me too movement a hell of a lot of which wasn't being substantiated um and how that can be quite damaging and I completely understand why they felt like that anyway I could talk all day about this book it's about so much more than um harvey weinstein and it is out now published by bloomsbury and the last thing i loved this week i was very moved by a piece by the times journalist janice turner dolly you'd love this piece um on clearing out her parents house in doncaster after her mum went into a home age 95 it deals with a lot of painful truths about family and childhood like her desperation to unshackle herself from what she felt was a suffocating family home and and the tradition there it deals with class she describes her parents as working class whereas the life she lives in london with her ground coffee and her good cheese is distinctly middle class so she looks really honestly and poetically at the ways in which her parents built this home she has to sift through all these family talismans like she finds an old lock of her hair and I thought it was so true she said you know to a mother there is nothing more kind of beautiful than the first lock of your child's hair like I've got Zadie's but to find it is quite creepy Mm. and a lot of those sort of family talismans are so um evocative and uh imbued with so much emotion to people whose family is but then if you're kind of finding it without that maternal love it's just like what do I do with a lock of my hair yeah and she has to go through 900 family photographs trying to decide what's valuable I will definitely read that I've been thinking about that recently because I've just started Deborah Orr's upcoming memoir called Motherwell which I'll talk about next week when I've finished it but it begins with with that image of it's funny she talks about finding her own lock of hair as well and how kind of disconcerting that is and it begins with her dismantling her family home when both her parents are dead but particularly this bureau that was kind of a bit of a family heirloom and all the things that lurked within that bureau and what a strange experience that is kind of looking at what we leave behind and those pieces of of self what does that say about a life it's it's very strange it must be very very strange janice says she comes undone when she finds this tin and inside is these two rolled up Um, stacks of £20 notes that she'd been getting out of the building society for each of her grandsons, for Janice's Mm. sons, um, and just saving up for ages Mm. in this tin. Doll, what have you been enjoying this week? I'm halfway through The White Album by Joan Didion, uh, but I wanted to talk about it before I finished it because I realised if any of our listeners have just watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or are going to watch it this week, they might find it an interesting sort of companion read. It's a series of essays written by Joan Didion that investigates the end of the 60s in California and really something much more... and all the kind of various scenes and icons that were present at that time. Um, And and also the sort of day-to-day life of how day-to-day 
domestic life operated in California at that time and really something that's much more nebulous and, and atmospheric and fascinating, which is the end of a particular mood in 60s America and the anxieties of the American psyche at the time. The book features accounts of Joan Didion visiting Black Panthers in prison. Uh, there's an account of her partying with Janis Joplin, sitting with the doors as they recorded in, the, in a studio and hanging out with girls from uh, Charles Manson's cult. It's a really troubling book, as so much of Joan Didion's writing is, but in a way that I've always found very very exhilarating, strangely, rather than uh, being depressing. I always finish her books, even even of the, of the grimmest accounts. I always feel um, energised in a way, and as if I have come out understanding more about the potential depths of darkness that humanity can plunder. And I think that just takes such a skill, that's such a rare and skillful talent. And I think her accounts are so journalistic and crystal clear and shocking, but her prose are so incredibly elegant and um, poetic and skillful and often metaphorical um, that it's just a really enriching experience reading her writing even if it is about something that's not particularly pleasant if you're at all interested in 60s counterculture then this is definitely a book for you so far i would say it's just as perhaps even more affecting than slouching towards bethlehem which is another essay collection covering a similar place in time i'd like to read from it just this passage that i found unbelievably eerie and i think must really capture what it was like to live in that part of America during that time. Strangers at the door knocked and invented a reason to come inside, a call, say, to the AAA, about a car not in evidence. Others just opened the door and walked in, and I would come across them in the entrance hall. I recall asking one such stranger what he wanted. We looked at each other for what seemed a long time, and then he saw my husband on the stair landing. Chicken delight, he said finally, but we had ordered no chicken delight, nor was he carrying any. I took the licence number of his panel truck. It seems to me now that during those years I was always writing down the licence numbers of panel trucks, panel trucks circling the block, panel trucks parked across the street, panel trucks idling at the intersection. I put these licence numbers in a dressing table drawer where they could be found by the police when the time came. There's one passage where she talks about where she was the night of Sharon Tate's murder, which was not very far from where she lived and and what that mood of fear in that area of California was like at that time. A very good hand-in-hand with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which hopefully, if we haven't shat all over it, people (laughs) might go still see. (laughs) What else have you been enjoying? Well, another amazing woman's account of life, but a very different woman. I've been rereading Bridget Jones's diary. Oh God, I love it so much. But I've got—I must confess—I actually revisit the, the films more than I do the book. Yeah, I haven't reread the and book I should properly now. from cover to cover in quite a long time. I don't have it. I'm going to go. Oh, buy I'll some. leave that. I've got that with me. I'll leave this with you. No, I want to keep it. <laughs> I want a, a, a Thatcher wine. Do you remember as well? This is the original cover of the silhouette, the silhouette of the woman smoking. I remember my mum reading it when I was little and thinking how glam she looked. When did it come out? Is it twenty years old? Uh, I bet it is. I think. Let me look at the front. So 20 years old would be 99. Or is that early or too soon? No. First published 96 by Picador. God, 23 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I was rereading it for research for a for a project that I'm writing, and I just raced through it and was reminded of so much that I loved about it. It definitely now feels very far away. It feels like a foreign land. So, yeah, the weight. I'm just looking at it now. So the weight thing is interesting because I've the weight is low as well. Yeah. Well, the, the so at the top of every entry, she writes what her weight is, and much more than in the films in the book, you really feel a total preoccupation and obsession with weight that I would say now with a 2019 sensibility I read it as someone in the throes of an eating disorder it's very uncomfortable you know she has a bad day she's eating 8,000 calories she's once she's sleeping with Daniel it's 700 calories and she's congratulating herself although what I would say is there is a moment in the book that I'd totally forgotten about where she finally gets down to her target weight and she goes to her friend's house for dinner and has a horrible time and everyone tells her that she looks haggard and she doesn't look like herself and they preferred her how she was before. But it, it's an absolute obsession with with weight. But do you know what? I don't find that problematic, to use the parlance of our times, because guess what? That was a reflection of what life was like for many urban working women of the 90s. So it's a piece of history. That was the neuroses of the time. You know, it was peak diet culture... And yes, it's uh, it's very sad to read now, but it certainly for me isn't a reason to discount the book. And there were lots of wonderful references to the 90s that I just adored. Pierre de Terre, Kitten Heels, Cooking from a Marco Pierre White Cookbook, <laughs> Lots of Wine in Café Rouge. Um, Café Rouge, is I that know. still going? Yeah, yeah, there's still a Café Rouge. I forgot how much Café Rouge featured as the meeting place in Bridget Jones. That's like the emergency singleton hotspot. Also, I do love just flicking through. There are like absolute sort of hints at what culture would become. Um, And given that it was from 96, there are lots of sort of like pre-feminist conversation cues. I love here, as Tom never tires of telling me, laying his hand on my arm and staring into my eyes with an alarming look, only women bleed. (laughs) You also really feel the emergence and lack of technology there's one bit in it like her, the excitement went down even Cleaver. have pages in it no there's all that excitement with daniel cleaver sending an email but it says sort of message pending for ages and there's there's a very strange bit where she's on this is pre-mobiles i think definitely pre sort of mass use of mobiles she's on a train and she wants to make a call to a friend so she refers to a phone that's on a train that people would queue up for and then call someone. A train phone? I don't even remember that. Do you remember that? No. Do you remember that, Charlie, as someone who's from Generation X? <laughs> the generation before. When you weren't listening to the wireless, do you remember being on a train phoning people? I just don't remember seeing this phone. I don't remember that. I've got one, I have got one thing to say to you, though. Go on. There once was a lady from Ealing who had a peculiar feeling. She lay down on her back and opened her crap and pissed all over the ceiling. Do you know, that doesn't feature in the book, exactly. Is that just made for the film? I think that was just made for the film. It is one of my favourite bits in the film. There's a bit that I'd like to read out because it made me laugh so much and it may have been published in 1996, but this certainly could be the behaviour of Dolly Alderton 2019. Nightmare Day in Office. Watched the door for Daniel all morning. Nothing. By 11.45am, I was seriously alarmed. Should I raise an alert? 
Then Perpetua suddenly bellowed into the phone. Daniel, he's gone to a meeting in Croydon. He'll be in tomorrow. She banged the phone down and said, God, all these bloody girls ringing him up. Panic-stricken, I reached for the silk cut. Which girls? What? Somehow I'd made it through the day, got home, and in a moment of insanity left a message on Daniel's answer phone saying, Oh no, I can't believe I did this. Hi, it's Jones here. I was just wondering how you are and if you wanted to meet for the Skirt Health Summit, like you said. The second I put the phone down, I realised it was an emergency and rang Tom, who calmly said, leave it to him. If if he made several calls to the machine, he could find the code which would let him play back and erase the message. Eventually, he thought he'd cracked it. But unfortunately, Daniel then answered the phone. Instead of saying, sorry, wrong number, Tom hung up. So now Daniel not only has the insane message, but will think it's me who's rung his answer phone 14 times this evening. And then when I did get hold of him, bang down the phone. (laughs) So if you'd like a walk back in time, a very pleasant walk back in time, Highly recommend rereading Bridget Jones's diary. Also, your skirt is off sick today. I know. And it could do with a skirt health summit. <laughs> I really am wearing the shortest skirt. It's already a mini skirt and it has a thigh high split. I'd also like to recommend a beautiful book called Boulder, uh, which I'm very in love with. The tagline for which is life lessons learned from people older and wiser than you. Sweet. This was put together by Dominique Afrikan and Helen Cathcart. And they're the same women who ran the Boulder blog, which I'm sure I talked about uh, on the show before. It's a photo and story blog celebrating age and it features profiles of people over 70 having fun and being adventurous and content and relaxed and daring and happy and sexy and cool as fuck. And it was meant to be a kind of anti-age shaming stereotype shattering project. And the book is just as wonderful. Let me show you the first few pages. It's it's divided up into kind of love and sex, health and fitness, style and beauty, work and career, happiness, regrets, death. And it's uh, all these beautiful pictures. So this is a woman I love, Rita Gilmore, 87 years old. Rita Gilmore owns a restaurant on Alderney in the Channel Islands. When she's not running up and down the stairs serving customers, she sings in a choir and models for her local dress shop. Oh my God, amazing. And then there's another couple. This is just in the first couple of pages here. Pat and Alicia Moorhead, 87 and 72 years old. LA-based skydivers Pat and Alicia Moorhead both hold multiple skydiving world records and between them have made almost 10,000 jumps. That picture of them in their gears. I know. (laughs) I know on a beach, just having the time of their lives. Um, It's just such a beautiful book. It's so life-affirming and I think it's so desperately needed in a culture that is so woefully phobic of age. And I just really believe this is something that we need to see more of because if we're lucky old age is coming for all of us older age than we've ever experienced and older age than we can imagine you know if if the projections are true about how old millennials are going to live until so i just think that we need to be comfortable with old age being something that we respect and admire and listen to rather than mock or pity or ignore. So thank you very much to this beautiful book, Boulder, for taking us one step further in the right direction, I think. So if millennials are going to live till they're about 100, and also it's widely circulated that we can't afford to retire, Mm -hmm. will we be doing the high-low age to 100? (laughs) And what will we be wearing? What will CJ look like? And how old will I be? How old will... will He'll be 140. He'll be well on his way to 140 at that point. (laughs) And what will the outside world look like? Will there be skyscrapers on my road? Flying cars. 
God, I sound so old. Flying cars. I love that's my grasp of technology. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The internet zeitgeist has been abuzz this week with a personal essay on the cut by a young writer called Natalie Beach, who claimed to be the ghostwriter of the Instagram influencer Enfant Terrible, Caroline Calloway, who shot to fame with her super long-form Instagram captions of her life at Cambridge, which secured her a £400,000 book deal, which she later rescinded. She hosted a series of disastrous workshops last year, which the media placed firmly in the scamming narrative that seemed to set last year alight with the Fire Festival documentaries and Anna Sorokin. The piece on the cut jumped into the top five trending tweets in the UK, I loved how Sarah Dighton put it. I'll just quote from her here. And so the two became collaborators in the project of a lifetime, creating Caroline Calloway. Their medium was Instagram, on which Calloway claimed to have become recently famous thanks to a picture of some macaroons, which acquired her 50,000 followers. Calloway supplied the life and Beach supplied the captions, which presented a fairy tale vision of a free-spirited life. They confected a high-minded defence of their work as art, telling themselves that they were inventing memoir in real time, engaged in a true feminist storytelling. What they were actually doing was a kind of identity pyramid scheme, cultivating a public version of the Caroline that Beach fell for and inviting other young women to buy the dream of being her. It's an extremely long read about an intense young female friendship where one woman feels both aesthetically creatively and financially subordinate to the other and how that is facilitated and fueled by the internet and it did feel not unlike the book that Anna Sorokin's friend Rachel Deloach Williams has just written called My Name is Anna. Doll, what did you think? I was totally and utterly unstimulated by it I have to say. Tell us what you really think. I just I thought there was a complete lack of story I read it because I felt like it was all anyone was talking about and I and it did feel like it was a cultural moment, but I just found it completely uncompelling. I think really what annoyed me, actually, was the way it was framed. I think there was this preposterous urgency to its tone as if it was some sort of breaking news story, when really I think it should have just been written as a contemplative, personal essay about a, a very strange friendship and a very troubled woman. You may ask why are we covering it if we're riveted as to the response it received, but that's exactly why I was really interested by it, because of the huge response to it, the fact that it was one of the top trending tweets in the UK, despite being written on an American platform. And we also received an unprecedented amount of tweets and emails about this, saying, can't wait to hear what you thought about it. So... This is not just a case of us being eaten by the internet. As Dolly said, it really felt like a cultural moment. And, and I was very interested by what made people so engaged, but actually what made people so angry, because it really did rile people up. I think there are some themes here that um, 
our reasons as to why it grabbed attention so much. Firstly, I think we can't get enough of the story of female schadenfreude, this idea that the privileged woman who led this enviable life and who many people hate follow on Instagram might be a sham. The enduring fascination with female friendship and this binary obsession with who is real in this life and who is fake. I think you've hit the nail on the head about schadenfreude there and particularly about kind of female narcissism that I think we're totally fascinated by. And I also think we have always been riveted with tales of identity, duplicity and and trying to now in modern times find inauthenticity or cracks in the accounts and lives and and identities that are presented online. I mean, that was, yeah, that's a big bulk of what I wrote. The authentic lie about and I was writing about something that we discussed a lot before Dolly this idea that um, someone called that there's only so much oxygen in the room for women so the idea that an opportunity for one woman directly correlates with the removal of an opportunity for another and I think what this has seen happen is that amongst millennial women and I don't mean all millennial women I mean that it's one cultural trope is that success is something that can be aped, so like a shortcut to success, and that it's easier to co-opt the success of someone else than to think about what you really want and to make your own. And what's interesting, I think, about this story is that Natalie is clearly a talented writer, but it seemed preferable to mine Caroline's platform to both profit from it and feel suffocated Mm. by it than it was to strike out on her own. You know, she willingly prostrated herself to Caroline, ostensibly for money, but I'm sure there are better ways to earn $200 a week than to act as an Airbnb manager for Caroline's flat when she's away, even when it didn't serve her. And and we've all been there. We've all been in friendships when we were younger. At least I have, luckily, only one or two, which are intense and emotionally voluble and they don't serve you in the way that they should. But I think Sarah Dighton put it well in that Guardian piece, which is how did Beach end up in Calloway's thrall? Because she wanted to be Calloway and she wanted Calloway to be her ticket to a better version of herself. Yes, and as you said, I think we've all been privy to or indeed been in them, those dysfunctional friendships where one or both parties are looking at the other one to provide them with something that they should be providing for themselves. I went through a bit of a weird process when I was reading this story and my reaction to it, I think I texted you quite a sort of bratty message the minute I finished it where I said that I just felt like I was listening to the account of one sixth former talk about how another sixth (laughs) former had committed some sort of common room petty crime. But then I sort of interrogated that reaction and I just wondered if that was me being dismissive of women's emotional lives and women's conflict, women's emotional conflict and women's relationships... Um, I don't know. I still really don't know how I feel about this essay, both the essay itself, how it was presented and published, and also the story. The essay definitely raises a lot of questions about the personal essay on the internet and the idea that young women, in order to establish themselves as writers, must mine their own interior life to uncomfortable degree natalie said in a new york times interview about her piece i mean that's how viral it went the new york times interviewed her she said i just came to this realization that you have to sell off parts of yourself and you have to sell out your friends and your loved ones if you want to make a career off of that she's talking about memoir writing on the internet i'm sure you'd disagree that to write a memoir you have to do that but i think it's interesting that natalie thinks that that's what writing about Mm. your life has to be like Misha Fraser Carroll wrote a very good piece for Galdem about the complicated ethics of publishing personal essays online when she says that 
for a lot of young female writers, it's the only way to get their foot in the door. And mm. that's still the case, actually. I often recommend to young writers asking me how they can get something published in a publication I say well what what's your story to tell that mm. is the that is the often the way you get your foot in the door doll have you ever written something that either you felt pressured to write or that now feels too personal um no not when I was younger because I think naturally I was just much less private when I was younger when I sometimes now think about the things that I wrote particularly in that dating column that I wrote for Sunday Times when I was 26 I do feel completely I do feel completely mortified but I didn't feel mortified when I was writing them and no one pushed me into writing them and I think I have to be really cautious not to let myself retrospectively shame it yeah shame a girl who didn't feel any shame what I will say is because of just who I am now and how I've aged and the experiences that I've had with writing a memoir I now am very 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 economic and incredibly cautious with details of my personal life and my work and that's it forever now I'm pretty sure I think that chapter of my work life is over but I've only got there having had a number of things happen in my career that has sort of freed me from doing that and I like that's a privilege of being yeah so I like to think that whether I had had the n- a number of things that have happened to me in my career the last few years that I still would be at a point in my life where I followed my own desires, which is I don't want to talk about my personal life anymore in my writing. But I can't really speculate on that because the fact is I've now got work in TV and in writing fiction or journalistically interviewing people where I have a choice not to mind my personal life. And there was definitely a period where I think that was the thing that was valued I must have felt like that was the thing I could offer people in my writing and I I think that is dangerous to believe that your only I didn't think it was my only value but I, I definitely have known young female writers where I have worried that they think the main USP of their writing is shocking revelation and public catharsis and and most writers any decent writers are so much more than that do you feel like you've regret anything that you've shared or that you there was pressure to to share in your writing when you were younger no I don't think I've ever sort of capitulated on something I really don't want to write um I have written some personal stuff but nothing that I regret I regret a lot of the fashion choices in wardrobe mistress I can tell you that for free <laughs> something that a lot of people have been wondering is why did Natalie have to name her and Misha says in her piece for Galden anonymity isn't always good for reliability legality or for traffic yeah I mean I think it's that traffic line I don't think that Natalie's essay would have got published unless it deconstructed the myth of a woman that had already had a great deal of coverage after her failed influencer workshops was seen as the congruence of all that is wrong with the internet young women Mm. and influencer culture whether that is true by the way is a debate for Mm. another time but certainly I think that without Caroline's name in the title that essay wouldn't have got published and that that does raise questions about who exploited who, I think. That definitely doesn't apply to me because I got her confused on the day with Caroline Quentin. Oh, my God, yeah. Who was the star of Men Behaving Badly. Great show, that. It was a great <laughs> show. I'd love to read an essay from her, actually. Christ. <laughs> 
Um, were you very aware of, of her before you read this essay? I remember you, you had mentioned her on the high-low before, but did you follow her on social media? Yeah, I remember when she was one of the only people on Instagram writing long-form captions. That is a relatively new um, way to use Instagram. That's certainly the way that me and you prefer using it, as it is more of a storytelling device, like when we share pictures of books. And I've met her before and she was very nice and she was very smart I mean that was years ago I don't have any more personal intel from that but yeah I was aware of the way her career was unfolding and at how um uh, flammable aspects of it mm. were and what it was feeding into I was also struck because this interview has got very meta where Natalie says in the interview with the New York Times, um, that she had complicated feelings about whether or not to write it, but she felt that since Caroline was back in the public eye speaking about things like her own Adderall addiction, that she wouldn't be outing her. And she said that she felt like... There was a bit that I thought was quite strange. She was back in the news telling the story of her life, and I'm not mad at her for not talking about me. I actually very explicitly told her not to, but I suddenly felt like wait a minute, I have a story to tell and I can tell it. So she said to Caroline, never out me as your ghostwriter, but the moment she then wanted to reclaim the story she did and to pretty disastrous effects to Caroline's personal life. So that doesn't feel like a particularly fair trade in terms of literary revelation. Yeah, I, I also don't like, there's this, maybe I'm projecting this onto her, but I, got, I get this sense that there's this feeling of like whistleblowing. And I just don't... Yeah, it's not... A, it's this, just not. Yeah, like, it's not whistleblowing. I agree with that. Um, have you seen the commentary on Caroline's um, Instagram as well? Yeah, I, went, I find that Instagram really now just really upsetting. Have you seen as well that her father died? I saw that... So Caroline is perhaps going the way that people would not suspect in that she's posting at length and constantly. I would say compulsively. Compulsively, and is talking a lot about uh, the tragic death of her father, which seems to be very recent. I think um, it happened, she found out a few days after this essay was published. Oh my God. And then there was a, there's a picture of, again, so meta, it goes from internet to analogue, back to internet. She's printed out Natalie's internet essay and underlined it in felt tip. And then she's taken a picture of that and put it on Instagram and said... Here's Natalie's essay that I printed out and made notes for to discuss with my therapist. Um, she's having a ver- she's going through mm. sort of a dual thing here, both reacting to her father's tragic death and also reacting to this essay. It feels like you're watching this woman in real time react to it, and I, I have to say, for me, it is too unbearable to witness. She, she, I, I'm not going to go back on that Instagram. No, account. neither am I. She's very self-aware of it, though, possibly too self-aware of how the internet shapes and um, manipulates because she says, you know, a lot of people are telling me to get off Instagram and I'm not going to. I'm going to Sorry, that sounds it. very judgmental, what I said. Everyone is allowed to use public space in however they want. No, 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 to but it's... Grieve or it's, react or whatever. It's, it's I difficult just, to see people having this incredibly raw emotional response on... That has always been her thing, though, is making people sharp well, intake if, if of breath. If it's helping her, that's, that's totally fine in her prerogative. It's just I personally, when I went onto it, it just felt uh, very uncomfortable. Mm. I have to say this really endorses my theory that whilst the details must differ, the form of a woman toppling off her pedestal is always the same. She's elevated quickly through precarious means, though not though not typically untalented, 
to great financial gain before the truth, quote unquote, comes pouring out. And it's rarely that interesting a truth that causes her to topple. You know, in this case, it's Caroline had a close friend who helped her write her Instagram captions. I write yours all the time, Dolly. Sometimes it even is me in a clip-on fringe and a sparkly dress. Anyway, that Caroline is this influencer Frankenstein is something that she herself has disputed. She said Natalie helped her write captions before she got to Cambridge, got lots of followers and got her book deal. So the details are in dispute. A lot of the essay is not so much about the writing of someone else's personal narrative, but about the insidious curse of comparisonitis, where you compare yourself to someone that you feel like is better than you. You know, a lot of women do this. Natalie frequently breaks down about how Caroline is more attractive than her and boys fancy her more. That's a horrible feeling. And she writes about that really beautifully. If I were more like Caroline, I thought more beautiful and fun. If I radiated girlishness, then men would view me as someone worthy of care. But it's also nothing to do with... Caroline and this essay is something that we're seeing increasingly I think where something is billed as something else something more sensational something that claims to blow the lid or debunk the myth and you're being invited to make moral judgments about someone's life and to pick a side that's what Misha Fraser Carroll writes and I think that's really true this essay implores you to it's quite gossip girl are you a Natalie or are you a Caroline and that feels like the least progressive way to speak about women I couldn't agree with you more Thank you very much for listening to The High Low. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, thehighlowshow at gmail.com or tweet us at The High Low Show. And do not forget to share your yarns. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.